Good morning, everybody. Thank you, Lord, for being here. Um, I asked the Lord for two specific things this morning uh, before I came into this building. And uh, I, I want to thank God for answering both of my prayers. Uh, he's a real God. He's a big God. And uh, he can do far more than we can ever imagine. I want to begin this morning by asking you a simple question. I need your attention. I want you to listen. Who typically changes the course of history? Who typically changes the course of history? Is it politicians? Presidents? Generals? Wealthy people? The list goes on. And the truth be known, every one of these people has the potential of changing history. And many do, but typically and more often than not. It is ordinary women, men and women, with little social clout or standing that are the most apt to significantly change or reshape the course of the world. I'm talking about ordinary people just like you and me and you look at me and you go, well, you know, I'm kind of really ordinary. Why, what makes you think God could use me? Well, let me ask you another question. Who was it that delivered the nation of Israel from the grip of Pharaoh's oppression? Who helped them get out of bondage, out of slavery? If you really want to be spiritual with your answer, I know you're going to say, well, God did that, <laughs> and he did. That's the right answer. God's the one who delivered the nation of Israel out of Egypt. But if you know your Bible, you'll also know that God used a man by the name of Moses to lead his chosen people out of that Egyptian bondage. But it goes even deeper than that. In fact, far more ordinary than just Moses. If you've got a Bible, I want you to turn with me to Exodus chapter 1. If you have your scripture on your phone, you can turn there as well. Exodus chapter 1. A little bit too lengthy this morning to put in the sermon notes or on the PowerPoint. But I want us to read this text because it tells a story that we need to hear. In Exodus chapter 1, it says, These are the sons of Jacob who went with their father to Egypt each with his family. You had Reuben and Simeon and Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. Joseph was already down in Egypt. His brothers sold him into slavery. In all, Jacob had 70 descendants, direct descendants. In time, Joseph and each of his brothers died, ending that generation. Time was marching on. But their descendants had many children and grandchildren. In fact, they multiplied so quickly that they soon filled the land. There were Jewish people everywhere. But then a new king came to the throne of Egypt who knew nothing about Joseph or what he had done. He told his people, these Israelites are becoming a threat to us because they are so, there are so many of them. We must find a way to put an end to this. If we don't, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies and fight against us. Then they will escape from the country. 
So the Egyptians made the Israelites their slaves and they put brutal slave drivers over them, hoping to wear them down under heavy burdens. They forced them to build the cities of Pithom and Ramses as supply centers for the king. But the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more quickly the Israelites multiplied. The Egyptians became so alarmed that they decided to make their slavery more bitter still. They were ruthless with the Israelites, forcing them to make bricks and mortar and to work long, long hours in the field. And then Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, gave this order to the Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Puah. He said to them, when you help the Hebrew women give birth, kill all the boys as soon as they are born, allowing only the girl babies to live. Wow. But because the midwives feared God, they refused to obey the king and they allowed the boys to live as well. And then after some time, the king called the midwives back in and he said, why have you done this? Why have you allowed the boys to live? And they said to him, sir, the Hebrew women are very strong and they have their babies so quick that we cannot get there in time. They're not, they're, they're not slow in giving birth like the Egyptian women. They stretched the truth a little bit, didn't they? <laughs> Verse 20 said, so God blessed the midwives. And the Israelites continued to multiply, growing more and more powerful. Folks, with all the wealth and all the power that Pharaoh possessed, he was still no match for ordinary people in the hands of Almighty God. What a powerful truth. You know, Pharaoh, if you know anything about him, was the self-proclaimed God and king of Egypt. And he thought that he could take control of the situation simply by ordering these two midwives to murder. And, and when I say two midwives, they were probably the leaders of a group of midwives that lived throughout the land. He ordered them to murder all these Hebrew male newborns. When you stop and think about that, friends, it was a bloody and ruthless plan. Not unlike today's plan. It was a political maneuver designed to reshape the course of history and destiny. And ultimately, it was a satanic scheme set in place to get rid of the children of Israel, God's chosen people. And if this order had been executed as demanded then Israel would have been systematically exterminated. There wouldn't be any Jews today. The only problem was that Pharaoh's plan went contrary to the plan of God. And friends, that never works. Never does. But then, you see, Pharaoh didn't know that because Pharaoh didn't know our God, did he? He wasn't aware of the promise that God had made to Abraham years and years before and that in itself was a huge, huge mistake. In Genesis chapter 22, we have the essence of that promise captured in the words written by Moses. He said, then the angel of the Lord called again to Abraham from heaven. And this is what the Lord says, because you have obeyed me and not withheld even your beloved son, 
I swear by my own self that I will bless you richly. That, that, the context of that is when Abraham was told to take Isaac up on top of Mount Moriah and sacrifice him. And then God provided a different sacrifice, a lamb in the bushes. God goes on to say, I will multiply your descendants into countless millions like the stars of the sky and the sand on the seashore, and they will conquer their enemies. You don't want to fight with Israel. Not even today, especially not today. They take our machinery, our tools of war, and they make them far better. And he says, and through your descendants, all the nations of the earth will be blessed, all because you have obeyed me. How many times have I said to you that God blesses obedience over and over? You know, the sooner we learn that, the better. Amen? We, we need to understand that God blesses obedience. Now, I want you to notice how God made this promise good. He used these two ordinary Hebrew slaves who were midwives, one named Shifra and the other named Pua. You ever heard of these ladies before? Probably haven't seen their name in the paper or the headlines or on commercials or TV. You know, you're probably not going to read about them very much. You got to ask yourself the question, were they rich aristocrats? Were they the wives of politicians or presidents? Were they married to military generals? I doubt it. We're not really told. But it certainly doesn't sound like it. They were just ordinary people with a common ordinary job. Kind of like a shepherd, you know. Someone that works behind the scenes that doesn't get a whole lot of notoriety or, 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 or grandeur, you know. We know little about them. We know that they delivered babies for a living. Hebrew babies. They were the leaders probably of a group of midwives that worked throughout the land. They refused also to do what Pharaoh ordered them to do. And that was a very risky thing. You, you just don't go against the, the king's orders. But they did so because they feared God more than they feared Pharaoh. These brave older women had a great heart reverence for God, and so they obeyed him and not man. They loved God. They were loyal to God. They, they lived to please the Lord, and besides that, they obviously understood that children, children are a gift from God and that, that murdering innocent babies is just wrong. It's wrong. Even today it's wrong. John Maxwell says, In civil disobedience, Shifra and Pua risked their lives to protect the children of God, the children that God had placed in their care. Their, their bravery prompted God to show them kindness and bless them with families of their own. He says, no doubt their children and their grandchildren took part in the great exodus from Egypt. Folks, these ladies knew God. They knew God and they knew that God's will and his ways were far more important than even the orders of a, a mighty king, an earthly king. So these midwives, they demonstrated a very healthy respect for God. They refused to obey the wicked command of a Pharaoh. And they did the right thing. And because they did the right thing, these male babies were allowed to live. 
They knew the right thing and they knew what to do. But what they did not know was that through their faithfulness to God and, and, and their, their risky decision to spare the lives of all of these male children, that God would raise up, he would bring to life a, a, a young baby boy that would grow up to be Moses who became God's ordained deliverer for the nation of Israel. So who changed the course of history? Was it Pharaoh? He tried. He really tried. He did his best, but he couldn't do it. He was powerless to thwart the plans of God. And even Satan tried, but he couldn't do it either. God used two ordinary women, two ordinary people, Hebrew midwives. And because of their obedience to God, we now know their names. Think about that. They have names that are recorded in the word of God. Otherwise, we would not know them, but God thought they were so special because of what they did in their obedience and their faithfulness to him that God put their names in the word. Just ordinary people doing extraordinary things for God. I want you to know that that's the way God likes to work. God likes to do it that way and and, and because of that, I want to remind you of the story of Jesus. You remember how God used Jesus? In John chapter 8, he records that Jesus' trial before Caiaphas, it ended early, in the early hours of the morning. If you go back and study that event, there were actually six trials of Jesus. All of them were illegal. It says, then he was taken to the headquarters of the Roman governor. His accusers didn't go in themselves because it would have defiled them and they wouldn't have been allowed to celebrate the Passover feast. These people wanted to hang on their, to their religiosity. So Pilate, the governor, he went out to them and he asked, what is your charge against this man? And they said to him, well, we wouldn't have handed him over to you if he wasn't a criminal. How dare you question our authority? Again, I want you to notice there is no specific charge or crime that's mentioned here. This was just a, another political maneuver in order for them to get their way. They certainly were attempting to change the course of history. Jesus was guilty of no crime. This was a bogus issue. This was fake news. They just hated Jesus. And they would stop at nothing to get rid of him. But Pilate was smart. Pilate understood what was going on. He saw through all of the, the smoke and he says to them, you take him away and you judge him by your own laws. And they go, well, you know, uh, wait a minute. Only the Romans are permitted to execute somebody. So they expose their hand right there. In verse 32 it says, this fulfilled Jesus' prediction about the way that he would die. He knew he would be executed. He knew what he had going before him, but he still stayed focused on the cross. I want you to notice that these evil people were actually executing the plan of God, and they didn't know it, which shows the depth of their spiritual ignorance. In verse 33, it says, Then Pilate went back inside, and he called for Jesus to be brought into him. And he said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus replied, is this your own question or did others tell you about me? Pilate said, am I a Jew? Your own people and, and their leaders, they brought you here. Why? What have you done? 
And then Jesus said, I'm, I'm not an earthly king. If I were, my followers would have fought when I was arrested by the Jewish leaders. But my kingdom is not of this world. What a powerful statement that went right over Pilate's head. He was worried about competition and Jesus was making a divine statement. Friends, I want you to stop and think for a minute about how Jesus came into the world. Think about and remember what God said through the prophet Isaiah about the way God does things. In Isaiah 55 verse 8, God said, My thoughts are completely different from yours, says the Lord. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. In other words, God says, I don't do things the way you do them. I don't function the way the world functions. Again, take a moment and think about who Jesus was. Guys, he was God. Scripture is very clear about that. Jesus Christ was God. Think about how he came into the world, not through a mansion, but through a manger. Think about the way he lived his life, not being selfish, but selfless. Everything that Jesus did was cross-cultural. He didn't line up with the world's expectations. He didn't function the way the world does. When you look at the life of Jesus, he was all about God. He was about the Father's will, His divine will. His life was all about God's divine purpose and His kingdom agenda. Everything about His birth and His life was different. And yet He came as an ordinary man. I love what Isaiah writes. God spoke through Isaiah and He put it on paper or parchment. In the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, God said, My servant grew up in the Lord's presence like a tender green shoot, sprouting from a root in dry and sterile ground. There was nothing beautiful or majestic about his appearance, nothing to attract us to him. I, I, I wondered this week, was, was Jesus a beautiful baby? I don't know. It just says he didn't stand out in the crowd. Nothing beautiful about him. Nothing majestic. He was despised and rejected. Man of sorrows, acquainted with bitterest grief. We turned our backs on him and we looked the other way when he went by. He was despised and we did not care. And yet in our weakness, it was our weakness he carried. It was our sorrows that weighed him down. And we thought his troubles were a punishment from God for his own sins. But he was wounded and he was crushed for our sins. He was beaten that we might have peace. He was whipped and we were healed. All of us, all of us have strayed away like sheep. We have left God's path to follow our own. And yet the Lord laid on him the guilt and the sin of us all. He was oppressed and treated harshly and Yet he never said a word. He was led as a lamb to the slaughterer. And as a sheep is silent before the shears, he did not open his mouth. From prison and trial, they led him away to his death. But who among the people realized that he was dying for their sins? That he was suffering their punishment? He had done no wrong. 
None at all. He never deceived anyone. And yet he was buried like a criminal. He was put in a rich man's grave. In verse 10, Isaiah says, But it was the Lord's good plan to crush him and to fill him with grief. Yet when his life is made an offering for sin, he will have a multitude of children, many heirs. He will enjoy a long life, and the Lord's plan will prosper in his hands. When he sees all that is accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. I love this part. And because of what he has experienced, my righteous servant, will make it possible for many to be counted righteous for he will bear all, all their sins. I will give him the honors of one who is mighty and great because he exposed himself to death. He was counted among those who were sinners and he bore the sins of many and interceded for sinners. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Paul writes, though he was God. God, the creator of the universe. He did not demand or cling to his right as God. It says that he made himself nothing. Do you know what that means? It means that Jesus became ordinary. Ordinary. Just like you and me. He took the humble position of a slave and he appeared in human form and in human form he obediently humbled himself even further by dying a criminal's death on a cross. Friends, Jesus gave up everything to be about the Father's business. That's why he came to earth. He gave up his heavenly home. He gave up his heavenly throne. He gave up and he surrendered his divine position. He sacrificed his life. He became a slave to serve you and to serve me. He focused on just one thing. Just one thing. This drove his life. This was the reason why he existed. He came to do the Father's will. Verse 9, it says, because of this, because he gave up everything, God raised him up to the heights of heaven and gave him a name that is above every other name. God has this thing with names. You might be insignificant, but you can do extraordinary things for him, and, and you mean something to God. He gave him a name that is above every other name so that at the name of Jesus, notice this, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, God the Father. Verse 6 through 11 are pretty amazing words written by Paul. I intentionally skipped over verse 5 because I want you to focus on that for just a minute. Let's go back and read verse 5, having just read verse 6 through 11. Paul says, your attitude. I want you to circle the word your and right above it write my. My attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. 
because of who he was, just an ordinary person coming to do extraordinary things of God for God. He says, your attitude should be the same that Christ Jesus had. The New Century Version says, in your lives you must think and you must act like Christ Jesus. Again, Jesus came to earth to do heavenly business. We, we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. He came to do the Father's work, kingdom agenda. He was focused. And Paul says that our attitude, our attitude should be the same as that of Christ. Why? Why should it be? Simply because attitudes matter. You see, your outlook will determine your outcome. Think about that. Your outlook will determine your outcome. Warren Worsby said, if your outlook is selfish, then your actions will be divisive and destructive. But if your attitude is selfless, then you will unify and you will be constructive. Think about it again. Jesus, according to the word of God, was God. He was all God. Being God, Jesus did not need for anything. He had all the glory and all the praise of heaven. With the Father and with the Spirit, he reigned over the universe. And yet, Jesus surrendered it all to come do the Father's work. He gave it up. He chose not to think of himself. He was selfless. He chose to think of others. He chose to think of us. His outlook, his attitude was that of unselfish concern for others. He had the kind of attitude that said, I cannot keep my privileges for myself. I must use them for others. And to do this, I will gladly lay them aside. And I will pay whatever price is necessary. Years ago, there was a reporter that was interviewing a successful job counselor who had placed hundreds of workers in their vocation quite happily. And he was asked the secret of his success, and the man replied with these words. He said, if you want to find out what a worker is really like, don't give him responsibilities. Instead, give him privileges. You see, most people can handle responsibilities if you pay them enough money. But it takes a real leader to handle privileges. A true leader will use his privileges to help others and, and to build up the organization. But a lesser man, he will always use his, his privileges to promote himself. How true? How true? The Word of God said that the Son of Man came to find lost people and to save them. He didn't come to earth to rule, he didn't come to set up his throne. He came to redeem the lost. It says in the same way the Son of Man did not come to be served. He came to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many people. You see, Jesus became an ordinary man to do extraordinary things for God. He gave up his kingdom to serve and to redeem the lost. And he wants us to think and act like him. Be honest. In all of your studying of history, nobody, nobody has changed the course of history like Jesus Christ. Everything is marked by his life. Everything. And you know what? Nobody will ever measure up to Jesus. 
And yet he saved you and he left you here to try. He said, greater works will you do because I am going to the Father. Folks, I said to you last week that you're the body of Christ. You're the church that Jesus died for. We all need to understand that God has chosen the church to exist today, to be his change agent in the world. If he's going to change the world, he's going to change it through the church. His plan is to use simple, ordinary people just like you and me. Oh, thank you, God. Thank you that I don't have to be somebody that's rich and powerful and special. I can just be me. And God can use me. He can use you. He can use all of us. I love what Peter writes. He's writing to the church. He says, you're a chosen people. You're a royal priesthood, a kingdom of priests, God's holy nation. You are his very own possession. He says, this is so you can show others the goodness of God for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people. You were nobody. But now you're the people of God. Once you had received none of God's mercies. But now you have received his mercy. Verse 11. He says dear brothers and sisters. That's everybody. Amen. He said you're foreigners. Foreigners. Aliens. And you don't even have a pointed head. You're aliens. The kingdom that you belong to is not of this world. Friends, we are temporary residents in this land. This is not our home. This is not all there is to life. You must not live your life on earth as if this is all there is to your existence. If you do, you are missing out. I've said so many times that God gives us 75 plus or minus years on this planet to decide where we want to spend eternity. There's an eternity coming. You better get ready for it. It's coming. You get to choose now where you want to spend eternity. And if by chance you choose Jesus in heaven, then you are called into service to reach others and to help them into the kingdom of God. Remember, Jesus said, I am not an earthly king. I'm not. My kingdom is not of this world. Wow. To even know that truth, but even more so to know him and let him be king of our life. What, what an opportunity. Peter said, so I warn you. I warn you to keep away from evil desires because they fight against your very soul. Be careful how you live among your unbelieving neighbors. For even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will believe and give honor to God when he comes to judge the world. I remind you here that Peter was writing to the church. Ordinary people just like you and me. They existed in his day. They exist today. We are that church and we have the same mission that Jesus had. Our job is to find lost people and to bring them to Jesus. That's our job. That's why we exist. 
Dr. Tony Evans said the goal of the church should be to aim for preparing Christians to live as God's representative in our world. We are his ambassadors. We represent Christ. And he said whenever the body of Christ functions as God's representatives in this world, they do so cross-culturally because they are part of another kingdom living under another king. I love that. He says our identity with Christ as our king automatically brings us into conflict with the accepted values of our culture. We swim upstream, not downstream. The reality of this conflict has become increasingly clear as we have watched the values of our society erode, corrode, go in the ditch right in front of our very eyes. Anybody want to deny that? I didn't think so. Question is, what are we going to do about it? What are we going to do about it? Do you realize we've lost two generations already? That's what Dare to Share was about last night. Raising up some godly kids that will take control of the destiny of this world, our country, our community, our church, our homes. We've already, we can't afford to lose another generation. We already have two or three generations out there that do not have any clue about God whatsoever. We can't afford. To lose anymore. What are we going to do about it? Well, Peter says we must first be careful how we live among our unbelieving neighbors. Why? Because they're watching. They're watching. I told you about me cutting my neighbor's yard the other day. They still haven't acknowledged it. That's okay. But they know who did it. They do. Why? Because they watch me. The other day I was cutting the yard again. Not their yard, but my yard. But I was cutting the lane. I always keep our lane nice and neat. We got eight families live, or seven families living on our lane. Nobody cuts the lane. But I cut it. Why? Because I want it to look good. But I was cutting in front of their yard. And as I... I already made one pass. I was making my second pass. They got this little American flag out there, and they got this little light with a solar panel on it that shines up on the light. I hit that doggone thing with my lawnmower. I just bumped it, and it fell over. And I thought, oh, no. I looked over, and nobody was home. And I thought, Well, then I, I got to thinking. I mean, instantly I thought, well, they're going to know who did this because I'm the one that cuts the grass. <laughs> so I waited till they were both home, and I went over there, and, and, I, and I didn't go up to the door, but I said, knock, knock. And Bob came to the, the, the screen door, and I said, Bob, I, I, I need to tell you something. I, I broke your light out by your flag. He said, what? I said, I broke your light. I stood it up. Because I was hoping it was going to work. I did it right before dark. But then I noticed the light's not on. I said, I need to buy you another. He said, what? I said, I broke it. He said, so? It's cheap. I said, well, I had to tell you. Why did I have to tell him? Because they're watching. No, not because they're watching, but because it was the right thing to do. 
the right thing to do. He said, don't worry about it. People are watching us making up their mind about God, whether they're going to believe in God, based on how they see us live our lives. You, 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 your life may be the only sermon that some of them will ever hear. It may be the only Bible that they'll ever read. You have to practice Christ's likeness before you earn the right to preach Christ to your neighbors. Peter said, people who do not believe are living all around you and might say that you're doing wrong, but live such good lives that they will see the good things you do and they will give glory to God on the day when Christ comes again. That's why we do what we do. We also have to realize that most people here in America really don't have an idea or a clue who Jesus is. That's hard for us to understand. You know, I grew up when Jesus was very commonly taught. Even in the school system, we learned about Jesus. There was a pastor of Riverstone Community Church, Pastor Marshall Thompson. That he down in Jacksonville, Florida. He decided he was going to do a little spiritual experiment. And so he took a notepad and he didn't take a camera or a microphone. He didn't want to scare people. He just took a guy with him to record the the comments of the people that he kind of interviewed on the street. And he had in mind to ask one question. He, he was going to ask this. May I ask you, in your opinion, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And, and he says that their opinions varied widely. And some people would acknowledge us. Others just kept walking. Others replied that they were too busy and that they never mixed politi or politics and religion. They didn't discuss it. He said some took the time to stop for a second and give us an answer. But unfortunately, most of the answers had no scriptural foundation and could not have been further from the truth. People don't know who Jesus is. If you think that, you're fooling yourself. You're, you're like an ostrich with his head stuck in a hole. People don't know who Jesus is. I know that's hard to believe, but, but most of the people in America don't know the biblical Jesus. Why? Because they haven't been raised in the church, or else they've been raised in a church that doesn't teach the truth. Most of them don't read the Bible. Many of them don't even own a Bible. And what's sad is that what Christian friends they have are unfortunately silent about their faith. So how are they going to learn? Unchurched people just don't know what they don't know. But here's some good news. According to Dr. Tom Rayner, he said the exciting news is that the people we're living around today, our, neighbor, our neighbors in our neighborhood, they're interested, they're seeking to discover the truth about spiritual things. They want to talk about spiritual things. And he says 82% of the unchurched were somewhat, when they did the survey, they were somewhat likely to attend church if somebody would just invite them. 82%. Let's cut that in half. If only 41% will come if you'll invite them, we'd fill this building up in no time, wouldn't we? All they need is an invitation. Love them and invite them. The overwhelming majority of the unchurched people out there in the world would like 
to develop a sincere relationship with a real Christian. They want to know what you know and believe about God. They want to know how God is making a significant difference in your life. They want to know how they can know God personally. And friends, that's where ordinary people like you and me come in. You see, as a Christian, we have to be available to engage our unbelieving friends and our neighbors in a conversation about the Jesus they don't know. Just an ordinary conversation. A simple conversation. I want you to understand that you are your neighbor's best chance to know God. Ooh, think about that. God puts you in the neighborhood that you live in to represent him to your unbelieving neighbors. They want to know what you know. They see you go to church. They're not, you know, we're a little different. We go at 9. Most churches go at 11. But after you've gone at 9, of course, some of our people don't come till 9.30. I'm kidding. <laughs> we're on harvest time here. I understand. I'm just glad you're here. Amen? I'm glad you're here. I was... I came down from my study the other day and went into the office to do something with Joyce and, and Paul was there and Paul shared with me a little story and it illustrates the point that a, a simple conversation can leave a lasting impact. He, he talked about hearing a, a conversation that was had by two fighter pilots in Vietnam. This was in a day when it was very tough to be a pilot. And, and, and when, if you were a fighter pilot in Vietnam, you had to fly, according to Paul, a hundred missions before you finished your tour and you could come home. Something like that. Was that. Am I right, Paul? I think Paul's nodding there. That means I heard the story right. But here's the problem. As I understand it, the problem was the average pilot would typically get shot down within the first 33 missions. And most of them lost their life. And the conversation that he heard was two pilots, a new pilot into Vietnam, just recently made it there, and, and an older pilot. And, and they're having this conversation. And the younger pilot said to the older pilot, how many missions have you flown? And the older pilot said, 45. And the younger pilot says, wow, you're overdue. Doesn't that bother you? And the older pilot says, no. Because I know where I'm going if I die. Just a handful of words spoken about the Father. Never even mentioned God's name. And Paul said, you know, when I heard that, he said that one statement started me thinking about God and the relationship I needed to have with him. Paul. Paul's 80, what, 84 now? Am I close? Am I telling on you? <laughs> 84. 